Good morning, everyone. Uh, in case you couldn't tell, I'm sick. So, Grace, um, I sound worse than I am. I sound worse than I feel. So there's that. I think that's the better than the other way around. Um, and uh, ironically, I'm, I'm talking about Jesus healing today. Um, but we're almost at the end of the first part of our three-part dive into the Gospel of John. So next week will be our last week in part one which has been a story of belief. And then we'll pick up again with John in the fall with part two, uh, which will be called the story of life. And the refrain uh, we've hit on every week for the last two months um, should be a familiar one. It's one I hope that you are, are sick of, because if you're sick of it, it means it's sticking. Uh, toward the end of his gospel, John wrote this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name, that you may come to believe, that you may continue to believe, that you may consistently believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through that belief you may experience life, zoe, the word that we looked at, eternal life, the timeless life, abundant life in his name. That's our hope, that's our prayer for us as a church, that each of us individually and all of us collectively might experience the life that Christ offers us, might live in the flow of the Spirit, no matter what we're facing, that in a busy world, we might experience centeredness in Christ. In a fractured world, that we might experience healing in Christ. In an anxious world, that we might experience peace in Christ. In a grasping world, that we might experience sufficiency in Christ. In an unjust world, that we might experience justice in Christ. And in a transactional world, that we might experience grace in Christ. That's why John wrote, that's what we're about. Last week, Matthew talked about Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, the, the ever-rejected woman. And he contrasted her with Nicodemus. And we were reminded that the invitation of Jesus is to all. No matter how put together your life is or not. No matter how worthy you may seem in the eyes of the world or not. No matter your state of desperation or curiosity, you can come to Jesus. This week we're going to talk about Jesus the healer. And I want to talk about Jesus the healer in three acts. Three different acts. Because there are three very different responses to the one man in the passage that we'll read through today. And what we'll learn is that things aren't as simple as they seem. So let's begin. Act 1, a sick son. Let's set the scene, starting in John 4, verse 46. Then Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Cast your mind back five weeks, if you were here with us, to Watson's sermon on the wedding at Cana. Jesus' first miracle, the transformation of shame. Well, he's back there. He's back in that town, back from an eventful, let's call it a business trip to Jerusalem, where he visited the temple and drove out the money changers. He had a midnight chat with Nicodemus about being born from above, and then he rode roughshod over all sorts of cultural and social and religious norms by going straight through Samaria and talking with a woman at a well. In case you haven't been with us these last few weeks, Jesus has been busy. Now, there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This man, this official, was desperate. 
The Capernaum to Cana was about 20 to 25 miles. It was a day's walk, mostly uphill, because Capernaum was a lakeside town. It was about 700 feet below sea level. And this man, his son was dying. He heard that Jesus was nearby, so he went. He was a royal official, but he went. He didn't send someone else. He traveled the distance to beg Jesus to come with him and heal his son. That's dedication, right? That's desperation. And, and we know Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of compassion. We know he's going to hear him, and, and he's going to surely have mercy and, and heal the man's son. Uh, and Je so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It seems kind of harsh, especially to a desperate parent. I mean, where's your bedside manner, Jesus? He's just asking for his son to be well, right? The first thing to point out is that the you here is actually plural. So Jesus clearly isn't just talking to the official. Here's what came just before our passage in verse 45. When Jesus came to Galilee, he came back from Jerusalem, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him since they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the festival, for they too had gone to the festival. In other words, Jesus' enthusiastic welcome in Galilee was predicated on what the crowds had seen him do. They welcomed him because they were impressed with what he could do, and it appears they wanted more of that. They wanted more proof that Jesus could do miraculous things. Now, I want you for a moment to try to put aside what you already know about Jesus, because thus far in John's gospel, Jesus hasn't healed anyone yet. Okay? He hasn't done anything overtly miraculous. I mean, he turned water into wine, but that happened in like jars that nobody could see through. So he caused a riot in the temple, but that, you know, that just really shows he have a, has a rebellious streak. And then he's had a couple of conversations in private, so no one really knew about that. So it appears Jesus is he's pushing back on the crowd's desire to see him do some tricks. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Because he knows that a faith that is sustained by the visible alone is superficial. A belief that requires things to go your way in order for you to stick with that, well, isn't that just a projection of your own ego? Your own desires, your own wants? Now, it's not that our desires and our wants and ourselves aren't important, but I think we need to be really honest with ourselves about our motivations when we ask, as the official did. See, the text does say Jesus said to him, that is the man, so he couldn't just ignore it. And I think the question raised by Jesus' comment is a good one. Are you just coming to Jesus for what you can get from him? Are you just coming to Jesus for what you can get from him? When you ask God for something, are your motives open to being tested? What kind of faith, what kind of trust are you cultivating, and can it handle challenge? Can your faith handle challenge? Dutch theologian Hermann Ritterboss said, even in the heart-rending situation in which the royal official came to him, Jesus was not content to simply heal the man's son. His seeming harshness was aimed at not letting the man remain stuck halfway on the road of faith. Jesus' answer in verse 48 was not so much an accusation as a challenge. In other words, Jesus did not only want to give the son back to his father, he wanted to give him himself. See, Jesus is always concerned with who we're becoming. 
Even when we're concerned about, about noble ends and good ends, Jesus is always concerned about who we're becoming. And so sometimes Jesus pushes back a little to see how we'll respond, to see if we really do know what we want and why we want it. The official does. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. Recently, I read a book by um, Duke Divinity professor Kate Bowler. It's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. It's a really powerful and moving account of her last few years. Uh, in 2015, at the age of 35, she was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And the book dives into uh, her wrestling with that diagnosis, particularly in light of her Christian faith and the, the faulty assumptions that she discovered she had held on to um, in that journey. Uh, I really recommend it to you. But there's a particular phrase uh, that, that she uses in one part right after her diagnosis. She's in the hospital, and her friends and family are coming to visit her, and they're sitting in the waiting room. And she says they prayed thick, layered prayers in the way that only desperate people can. Thick, layered prayers in a way that only desperate people can. I imagine the official had prayed those thick, layered prayers for that day, all that way as he'd been walking from Capernaum to Cana. He wasn't even sure if, if his son would survive until his return. He didn't know if Jesus would be able to do anything. But he knew he had to do something. He was desperate. What situation would you bring to Jesus in your desperation? What situation would you bring to Jesus in your desperation? If our spirituality is what we do with our desires and our longings, as Father Ron Rollheiser says, what are you desperate for? What are you feeling in your bones? What, 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 you, what would you bring to Jesus? In the words of Ruth Haley Barton, when was the last time you felt it? Your own longing, that is. Your longing for, for love, your longing for God, your longing to live your life as it is meant to be lived in God. When was the last time you felt a longing for healing and fundamental change groaning within you? And so just for a moment, we're actually going to do a quick exercise that she suggests. Fill in the blank. You can write this on a note, you can write it in your journal or, or on the connection card if you want. Don't hand that in. You don't have to hand that in later. You can write this down. You can create a note on your phone. I'll, I'll wait. But I want us all to participate in this. To write this. God, what I want or need most from you right now is. God, what I want or need most from you right now is. I'm just going to give us 30 seconds, 45 seconds. First thing that comes to your mind. God, what I want or need most from you right now is. Come down before my little boy dies. I want him to be well. What is it for you? I, I want freedom uh, from anxiety for my kids. I want peace 
in the face of an uncertain future. I want purpose, uh, to know what I'm made for. I want, I, want an, I want to belong. I want to know where I fit in. What is it for you? Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Actually, he said in Greek, ha huios suze, your son lives. Present tense, your son lives. Jesus' word immediately gives present tense life. Jesus' word immediately gives present tense life. You know, sometimes I wonder what difference it would make if we slowed down enough in our busy lives, if we stopped doing enough with our busy hands, if we sat and listened to Jesus' word to us. I wonder what present tense life we miss out on because we aren't listening. The man, the official, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, started on his way. As he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover, and they said, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. So he's almost home now. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Your son lives. And so he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. We're told that the official believed even before he had verification, right? Even before his slaves told him the news that his son was better. How do we know he believed? He started on his way. It says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. I said this in the first week, to believe is to trust to trust that something is possible and to act as if it were true. And so he believed, the, the official believed, he trusted that Jesus' word was possible, that his son really did live, and he acted as if it were true. He went back home. And when his faith was vindicated by the confirmation of his son's healing, he and his whole household believed. Maybe you can see the similarities with last week's story of the Samaritan woman. Jesus' word leading to faith, leading to action, leading to belief of a whole household, a whole village in the woman's case. See, as one commentator notes, faith is contagious. Faith is contagious. And I'm thinking of some of you that came to faith through loved ones who are here today because of the person sitting next to you. And so here's the second question for Act 1. What action is the evidence of your belief in Jesus? What action is the evidence of your belief in Jesus? The man left without verification, without knowing for sure if his son had been healed. What, evidence, what action is the evidence of your belief, your trust in Jesus? What is it in your life that Jesus has said, trust me, and you're still asking, what, what should I do? Because you don't really want to trust. You're afraid. What conversation needs to happen? What confrontation needs to happen? What forgiveness needs to happen? What reconciliation needs to happen? What apology needs to be made? What reparations need to be given? What measures need to be taken? What boundaries need to be drawn? What changes need to be made? What needs to be given up or taken up as evidence of your belief in Jesus, your trust in Jesus? This is not a, a, about a works-based works salvation. This is about belief. This is about trusting that what Jesus says is possible and acting as if it's true. 
Act two, a simple solution. Act two. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethzatha, which has five porticos. You can see the ruins of this site if you go to Jerusalem. It's by the Church of St. Anne in the Old City. And it's actually two pools. Picture this as one commentator describes it. The pools were apparently as large as a football field and apparently 20 feet deep. And the porticos represent a porch on each of the four sides. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and one separating the two pools, perhaps to separate the men and the women. The pool to the north is smaller than the one to the south and the structure seven or eight meters deep gathered much rainwater. And the text says, in these, in these porticos, lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Jesus has been to Jerusalem before. All right, the last time he caused a ruckus in the temple. This time, he goes to what Jean Vanier describes as the local asylum. Okay, this was not a, a hospital where people went to get treated. This was more like a hospice for the terminal, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Those with little to no hope of recovery. And Vanier says, Jesus probably enters this asylum with some of his disciples. They're, they're, they're there with him. And he wants them to realize that their first calling will be towards those who are broken and rejected. He wants them to realize that their first calling will be towards those who are broken and rejected. Our first calling, as well, is toward those who are broken and rejected. If you are a Christian, you are not a Christian so you can be in the cool kids club. It is absolutely not so that we can parade our rightness or our righteousness before others or so that we can look down on others who get it so wrong. Our calling, like our Lord's, is to love those on the margins. To love the outcasts, those oppressed, those in need of justice, those who've been dehumanized or ignored or silenced. Our calling is to be conduits of God's healing. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Some of us in this room aren't 38 years old. But one man who had, was there who had been ill for 38 years. What do you think that must have been like? How helpless, how hopeless, how frustrated, how angry, how bitter would this man have been? And yet, Marianne Mai Thompson, a professor of mine at Fuller Seminary, she wrote this, the fact that for 38 years this man has languished without assistance indicts his society, not him. Right? The fact that this man has languished without assistance for 38 years indicts his society, the people around him. That's human nature to assess how life is going by how, by how your life is going, right? Our primary lens for life is our personal perspective. That's understandable. It's normal. It's natural. But the shift that faith draws us toward, the growth that God calls us into, is one where we break out of our individualistic mentalities and begin to look at life communally and socially, and in particular through the lens of the least of these, the ones in need. One of my favorite quotes is found at one of my favorite memorials, the FDR Memorial. 
And it says the test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. We ought to measure the health of our societies not by the number of millionaires and billionaires as as we usually do, but by the number of people in poverty, by the number of people without basic health coverage, by the number of people who are disenfranchised and living in the shadows, by the number of kids in foster care or victims of school shootings, by the number of people without a permanent home or who are displaced. And by those measures, we're sick. We're sick. When Jesus saw the man lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And and while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. I want us to be well. I believe God wants us to be well, to be healthy, to be whole. I believe that for each one of us as individuals. I believe that for, uh, for us as a church. And I believe that for us as a society. Jesus came that we might have life after all. And I don't mean that in some sort of fantastical, you can have it all right now kind of way. Kate Bowler, who I mentioned earlier, she asks, what would it mean for Christians to give up that little piece of the American dream that says you are limitless? Everything is not possible. The mighty kingdom of God is not yet here. What if, the, if rich did not have to mean wealthy and whole did not have to mean healed? What if being people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? God is here. We are loved. It is enough. God is here. We are loved. It is enough. <clears throat> so the question stands... Do you want to be made well? At the deepest parts of yourself, your soul, your psyche, your relationships, your past, and at the deepest parts of who we are as a society, how we relate to one another, especially to the least of these, do you, do we want to be made well? Life has been like this for so long. Do you want to be made well? It will require some changes. But do you want to be made well? You will face the uncertainty of a new unknown. Do you really want to be made well? How would you answer Jesus' question? Do you want to be made well? And what are the reasons or the excuses that you might give to Jesus? The man said that no one would help him get to the pool and someone would always cut in before he could get there. And I have no doubt that those things were true. But that's not what Jesus asked, is it? What are the reasons that we give to Jesus? Uh, Excuses. Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? The man gave his response and then Jesus said to him, stand up, take your mat and walk. And at once, man was well. He took up his mat, began to walk. 38 years. A simple solution. 
But John has been keeping back an important detail from us. Now that day was a Sabbath. Act 3, a Sabbath surprise. You know, I think it's real easy uh, for us to treat the, the Ten Commandments as actually nine commandments and one really good suggestion. <laughs> you know, don't kill, that makes sense. Don't commit adultery, sure. Don't steal, got it. Don't covet, don't lie, honor your parents, okay. Don't make any idols, well, I'm not that good with my hands anyway. So, <laughs> but remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Keeping the Sabbath was and is a big deal for the Jewish people. It was part of the law, God's law. And so it all had to be kept because that's what it looked like to honor God in this way to rest from work as God had ordained in creation. And over the centuries since the Exodus, the question had been asked, well, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? What does that look like? It's not a bad question. It's one that we were asking uh, last fall when Matthew and Lisa preached about the Sabbath. And so... The priests and the rabbis and the elders of the people developed policies around the Sabbath, and they eventually came to distinguish 39 categories of work that could not be done on the Sabbath, some of which was gleaned from the Law of Moses. Uh, that included kindling a fire, uh, plowing or planting or harvesting land, putting animals to work, gathering sticks, and buying and selling. <clears throat> the last of these 39 categories was the carrying of a load, from one dwelling to another. The carrying of a load from one dwelling to another. So the Jews, the, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish elite, uh, religious establishment, they said to the man who had been cured, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered, the man who made me well said to me, take up your mat and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said, that, said to you, take it up and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. By picking up his mat and walking, the newly healed man was violating the Sabbath law. And by telling the man to pick up his mat, Jesus was directing him to violate the Sabbath law. You think Jesus did that accidentally? You think he might have forgotten that it was the Sabbath. I think this rabbi uh, would have been unaware of the disruption and outrage this would have caused. I don't either. <laughs> Notice what the Jewish leaders asked the man, though. Not who healed you, but who told you to pick up your mat? Their attention is focused on the breaking of the law, not on the restoration of a human being who has been sick for 38 years. Surely a person's life is more important than the rules. Don't get me wrong. Rules and laws are important, especially when they're just, especially when they serve to curb evil or to promote the common good, especially to set boundaries on our excesses and our selfishness. That, I think, is when rules and laws work the best. But I don't think God ever intended for us to value rules and laws or even amendments and rights over lives over people's lives, image-bearers' lives, children's lives, immigrants' lives. Do you? 
This is what it says in James 2, verse 13. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I tend to be a rule follower. I like to know where the lines are so I can stay inside of them. I prefer to keep my head down and not cause a fuss. But sometimes, in the words of Congressman John Lewis, we need to get into good trouble, necessary trouble. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., the time is always right to do what is right. Sometimes we need to follow the example of Jesus and seek life, zoe, for the down and out and the powerless, even if it means defying the powerful. That's what it looks like to seek first the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like to keep the Sabbath that was intended to give life. So let me ask you, how can your Sabbath keeping be life-giving to others? And I mean that in a couple of ways. First, the one I've already mentioned. How do we judge right or wrong based not just on what's lawful, but on what's life-giving? Not just on what's expedient, but what's edifying. What are the ways God is challenging you to shift your perspective, to shift your worldview? But second, I mean that question uh, literally. How can your Sabbath-keeping be life-giving to others? I mentioned the, the sermon on Sabbath from last fall. And I remember how a lot of the reaction... Uh, immediately after that was, was for ourselves, understandably. We were, we were a, a, a tired, busy, overworked group of folks um, just trying to do good. We're just trying to make a difference in the world. And I believe God sees that. And, and so the idea of taking a break, and, and not just that, but shifting our perspective from uh, one where we work from our rest and not the other way around, the, the idea that all that sounds like water to our souls. I just need a break. I just need some rest. And I know a lot of us were asking, how can I observe Sabbath better? And that is a great question. It's a necessary question, an important question. But I think a better question is, how can we observe Sabbath better? How can we in community help one another observe Sabbath better? Let me give an example. If I refuse to help my wife Carolyn around the house on Saturday, which is my one day a week off, because I'm like, Sabbath. <laughs> I'm not doing Sabbath right. <laughs> practicing Sabbath for me means practicing Sabbath with my wife. Which means that we both do things to help make space for the other person to rest as well. And sometimes that's together and sometimes that's apart. Here's another example. I know for many of you, Sunday is your Sabbath. And so you prefer not to have to do anything. I get it. But you know what happens? Setting up and volunteering here at Minor often falls to the same faithful few. And I promise I'm not trying to guilt trip you <laughs> into signing up for a ministry team. You know the need. You know the need. But what if a Sabbath in our church meant that not a few people do serve so that everyone else can rest, but that everyone serves a little bit so that everyone can rest? What if that's what Sabbath could look like? 
In case you were wondering, the connection card is on your seat. <laughs> but let's return to the text. We're almost there. Later, Jesus found the man at the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, let me be clear. Not all suffering in a person's life is a result of their sin. And to be honest, those who sin do not necessarily have to endure suffering as a consequence. As theologian Gary Birch puts it, suffering is not an index of a person's sin. But, having said that, specific suffering may still come from specific sins. Sometimes there are consequences to our actions. A drunk driver causes a fatal wreck. An extramarital affair destroys a marriage. An abuse of power, however well-intentioned, causes church hurt. We don't know what happened in the man's life 38 years ago. We, we, we don't exactly know what Jesus was referring to. Jesus knows what he was referring to. The man, I'm sure, knew what Jesus was referring to. Some commentators think that there was something that the man needed to repent of, something from his past, maybe something that led to his condition. Others think he was unreceptive to Jesus. Maybe that was his sin. I mean, he got healed and walked away without paying attention to the person who healed him, right? And then, after Jesus meets him in the temple, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. Man, this week I was wrestling with this, this part of the passage in particular. When we first met the man and we learned he'd been sick for 38 years, like I felt a great swell of pity and sympathy and compassion even for, for this guy. I wanted him to be well. Right? And, then, and then when Jesus asked the question and, and he started pointing the finger instead of you know, answering from his heart, I, I gave them the benefit of the doubt. You know how hard it is to be ignored and beat down for four decades. He has a right to be angry and bitter. Life has not been kind to him. Let's show a little understanding. And then when he was healed and he just picked up his mat and walked away without acknowledging his healer, I thought, okay, just, he's just overwhelmed, right? He's, you know, he's, it's easy to be caught up in the, the emotion of the moment and not notice, especially Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the one who, who vanished into the crowd. So, but this, reporting Jesus to the Jewish leaders, I mean, sure, we can give him the benefit of the doubt again and say that maybe he didn't know what he was doing. Maybe he thought they wanted to acknowledge Jesus for showing them a new and better way. And that's just a bridge too far for me. So I came to the conclusion, and you may not, but I came to the conclusion that this guy isn't likable. <laughs> he actually isn't that likable. He blames others. He's ungrateful. Perhaps, perhaps he even caused his own predicament. And then he rats out the one who helped him and healed him. That doesn't feel like a gospel success story to me. I don't think this is someone we want to lift up or celebrate. And to be honest, it's someone I'd want to get angry at. Don't you know the gracious gift of God? He gave you your life back. And then Jesus reminded me, isn't that what grace is? Isn't that what grace is? 
It's the love of God poured out unconditionally on the righteous and the unrighteous. On those we deem deserving and on those we deem undeserving. On us and them. It was not the man's repentance that Jesus was drawn to. It was not his faith in Jesus that resulted in his healing. It was not the quality of his character that was finally rewarded. It was the overwhelming love and scandalous grace of God in Jesus Christ that desires healing and wholeness for all, even those who will choose not to receive it fully. Romans 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God proves his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before I ever went to seminary and became a pastor and gained some sort of built-in semblance of respectability, before I ever addressed my temper, before I ever let, decided to fight my addiction to pornography instead of letting it rule me, before I ever gave my life back to Jesus, before I ever tithed, before I ever served, before I got baptized, before I was born, Christ died for us. So that we might know, that we might believe that we are loved that much by Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that love might give us life. And so let me close with a couple questions. First, are you willing to be a healing presence even to those who don't deserve it? Are you willing to be a healing presence even to those who don't deserve it? Archbishop Desmond Tutu, in reflecting on his time as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the end of the apartheid regime in South Africa, he refused to call those who had perpetrated terrible violence and injustice monsters. He said this. He said, the point is that if perpetrators were to be despaired of as monsters and demons, then we were thereby letting accountability go out the window by declaring that they were not moral agents to be held responsible for their deeds. Theology says they still they still, despite the awfulness of their deeds, remain children of God with the capacity to repent, to be able to change, because our God is preeminently the God of grace. Ultimately, no person or situation in this theology is an irredeemable cause devoid of all hope. No person or situation is an irredeemable cause. There are, I know, people we find it hard to be around. People we prefer got their just desserts. People who've hurt you. Their roommates, their coworkers, their bosses, their relatives, their former friends, their public figures. God loves them too. God desires for them to know his life as well. And so will you be a healing presence to them? This week, this week, in whatever ways God places on your heart. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we just let them do whatever they want, that we condone their actions or their words or continue to let them hurt others. Jesus calls us to be wise, too, after all. But how might we, in our lives, let mercy triumph over judgment? And the second question, maybe more important, 
Are you willing to receive the grace of God? Are you willing to receive the grace of God? To bring your desperate situation to the Lord and to trust Him when He answers. To speak honestly and truly when Jesus asks you if you want to be made well. To know and receive the love and healing of Christ. To be born, anothen, born from above, born of God. To know that we don't have to have our lives together, not even a bit of it, before God says, come home, and welcomes us in with a bear hug. To know that there is nothing in our lives, nothing in our pasts, or our presents, or our futures that can separate us from the love of God. Even those of us who call ourselves Christians, who have been followers of Jesus for decades, we still need that grace. Every day we need that grace. Every moment I need that grace. I need to be reminded that my life is held in the hand of the Most High, that my worth is defined by His love for me, that my calling on this earth is to burn bright for the light of the world. All of that is grace. All of that requires grace. All these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. You know, the word salvation, it comes from the Latin salve, meaning healing. The continuing experience leading to wholeness. And so, brothers and sisters of Christ City Church, may you receive healing so that you might be a healer to others. May you receive grace so that you might show grace to others. And may you receive Christ so that you might carry Christ to others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.